But let me ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn first to 2 Kings chapter 12. We're going to be in two chapters today, 2 Kings chapter 12 and 2 Chronicles chapter 24, as we continue our journey through the Bible. You know, the older I get, the more literally in awe I am of men and women who are in their 70s or 80s or 90s who are still going strong for Christ. Every year that goes by, I I gain a deeper appreciation for just how hard it is to finish well. Uh, It's pretty easy to start something, a diet, a marriage, a commitment to follow Christ, but carrying that all the way through to the end and doing it well all the way to the end is another thing altogether. I would submit to you that the unsaved world has already seen more than enough Christians not finishing well, and I do not want to add to that number. I want to stay faithful and useful to God right up to the end. But I'm telling you, doing that will not happen by chance. It will not. It's going to require discipline and intentionality and persistence. It's going to require staying in God's word. It's going to require um, keeping our eyes on him. It's going to require remaining humble and teachable for the rest of our life. And the more I learn from the lives of others about what to do or what to avoid, uh, the more grateful I am to see both examples so that I can ask God to build those lessons into my life that I may finish well for him. Today's verses are going to show us um, how not to conclude your life. And there's a lot that we can learn from this. Last week, we were in 2 Kings chapter 11. We met a woman named Athaliah, the daughter of the wicked king and queen Ahab and Jezebel. We saw how Athaliah forced her way to the throne, and she put to death all the uh, potential heirs to the throne who could possibly stand in her way, and all of the ones she put to death were her grandchildren. This is the kind of woman she was. She murdered her grandchildren (coughs) so that she could force her way to the throne. But by God's providence, we saw how one little baby named Joash was, it says, stolen away from that event and was kept safe and was actually um, hidden away for six years. And through that, God preserved, he kept alive the line from David to Jesus. This little boy Joash was in the direct line there. And it looked uh, for a while there like the line to the Messiah was going to be cut off. That's Satan's desire, as I said. It's what he is continuously working towards. But Joash was kept hidden for six years. And when the right time came, Jehoiada the priest brought him out, crowned uh, him as the rightful king, and wicked Athaliah was put to death. So now here we are today. Young Joash now has his rightful place on the throne And we're going to pick up right there in, as I said, those two chapters, 2 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 24. Um, I've told you before, as as we've gone through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and now 2 Kings, 
And then the two books coming up are First and Second Chronicles. Well, Chronicles is a parallel of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. You can kind of take the books of First and Second Chronicles and overlay them on top of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. It's a retelling, if you will, of those earlier books from a different perspective. And so we're going to go between the two today, as we've done uh, sometimes before, because Chronicles helps fill in uh, a lot of important pieces for us. So, 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Zabiah of Beersheba, verse 2. Now, this is the key verse in the life of Joash. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all his days. Boy, I wish the verse ended there. He did right all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Joash started out really well. The first half of this verse is so encouraging. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But when you read that second half of the verse, there's this hint of trouble. There's this, this tone of concern that we pick up in the last half of that verse because what it is actually telling us is that Joash only did what was right in the sight of the Lord while Jehoiada the priest was alive and instructing him. And that became the dividing line in his life. Joash had a good beginning, but he had a catastrophic end. The first part of his reign, he seemed to be so committed to the Lord. But the last part of his reign, honestly, you can't believe it's the same person. Now, we jump over to 2 Chronicles 24.4. We'll be going back and forth, so keep a couple of fingers or toes or whatever you need to in there and make it easy for you. 2 Chronicles 24.4. Sometime later... Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. That's the temple, the temple that Solomon had built. So the verses go on to tell us that he put a plan in place. He called the priests and the Levites together. They put a plan in place to make sure um, that they had uh, the right workers to do the job. We're told about stone cutters. We're told about metal workers um, and so on. And also he wanted to make sure they had enough money to do it. Back in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 5, the last part of verse 5 says, Joash said, talking about the money, let it be used to repair the damage in the house of the Lord wherever any damage is found. Now, that verse ought to jolt us just a little bit. If we think back to the life of Solomon that we studied a few months ago, and all the years that he spent building that glorious, majestic temple for God, it was one of the wonders of the world. It was an extraordinary building filled with gold and jewels and the, the holy place and the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant and all of that. It was, a, it was a holy, sacred place where the presence of God himself would come down to meet with the people. And now here we're told that the house of the Lord, the temple, has been damaged, severely damaged. I mean, just think about how far God's people have fallen from the days when Solomon built that majestic temple and they all dedicated it to the Lord. 
That building that was once a work of art, that building that was once a testimony to the beauty and glory and majesty of God, now had been left desolate and had been left to deteriorate. We're even told this horrible detail back in 2 Chronicles 24, 7. The sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals, or Baal, some people pronounce it. Think about that. They've now gone into the temple. They've taken these sacred items from the temple that were to be used in the worship and service of God. And without a second thought, they stole them and went and took them and dedicated them, used them in worship to pagan idols. What a terrible testimony for God's name. So this massive project got underway. And what a sight this must have been to see this temple being restored to its former glory. Second Chronicles 24, 13 says, So the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them. They restored the house of God to its original condition and reinforced it. And then the second part of verse 14 tells us these beautiful words. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually, all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. I can't imagine how much this must have thrilled his heart. This man who had been called and commissioned by God to be a priest, to serve in the temple, to be the go-between, the intermediary between God's people and God, between God and God's people. He had been called to this highly respected role. But the temple in which he was supposed to serve had been in ruins his whole life. I wonder what he did during all that time. I don't know. He may do, I guess, with, with what he could, the best that he could. But now he's finally able to see the temple in all its original splendor and the worship and the sacrifices that God required now resume once again. What a momentous occasion this was in the life of God's people. And I so wish it would just continue on like that for the rest of the Old Testament. But we are people and we're all the same. We're all sinners. Our hearts desire to go astray from God. And so did the people in this day. Like so many grand works for God's kingdom, Big things, flashy things, wonderful new things. All the newness soon faded. And it's just staggering to see how quickly all of this work came to nothing. Because you see, as I said last week, revival never begins by building up. Revival must always begin by tearing down. And while Joash had done some impressive building up, he had totally failed to take care of some important tearing down first. Because while all these repairs to the temple were being done, we read this very telling statement in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 3. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. As we talked about last week, 
Until you're willing to tear down the ungodly things in your life, there's no point building up the things of God because you're building on a faulty foundation and it will not stand. I had the wonderful privilege a couple of weeks ago to hear the testimony of a, a precious woman who grew up in Hindu, Hinduism, staunch, strict Hinduism, worshiping multiple gods several times every day faithfully. But when she got saved, she, she described that moment when she prayed and said, God, I forsake all those other gods and I commit the rest of my life to serving you alone. She could never have built the beautiful relationship that she now has with God if she had not been willing to completely tear down all those other altars first. And that's what has to take place, not only in her life, but listen, in your life and in mine. It's dangerously easy. Hey, it is dangerously easy to worship God while still allowing idols to occupy a place in our heart. We don't pass through any kind of x-ray radar machine when we come in here that sets off red flashing lights and sirens if it detects idols in our heart. Wouldn't that be quite a display? We can come and we can go, we can sing, we can pray, all the while with idols in our heart. And we think that we're building our life for God, but we're building on a faulty foundation. We've never taken time to tear down first and then to begin to build on a level, clean, solid foundation. And we hear God say again and again through his word in one way or another, I will not accept anything less than an undivided heart of allegiance from you. He prompts us to tear down, to, to get rid of, those other gods, so to speak. But so often, like Joash, we, we look at them and we, we think, ah, it's not a big deal. I would assume, I don't know, warning, this is Phil's conjecture here, but I would assume that Joash and the workers, as they went every day to the temple to do the construction, many of them, I'm sure, must have walked past some of these high places, these places of idol worship. Many of them probably went the day before or that morning to those places to worship the idols and then packed up their toolkit and went over to work on the temple. Not a big deal, they thought. But God will not accept worship to him and allegiance to other gods. What's the first commandment? That's how important it is. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and we're so... Um, we're so advanced in our modern civilized society that we read that verse and we immediately dismiss it because we think, well, I'm not worshiping other gods. I don't have a wooden idol in my backyard. That's for those people back then. Mm. See, the problem is anytime a life for God is propped up by something other than a genuine faith, maybe it's a, maybe it's a person, Maybe it's a pastor who's in your life. Maybe it's parents who are still in your life and sort of watching over you. Maybe it's an environment. Maybe you're in a Christian school. Maybe you're at Bible college. Uh, whatever it might be, any time that a Christian life is propped up 
by something other than a genuine faith, that Christian life will deflate like a balloon with a hole in it as soon as that prop is removed. This is why so many kids, uh, it's an epidemic now really, so many kids in the church across America, when they reach college age and leave home and leave their church, they go completely wild. Because that prop that has been supporting their faith is now gone, and they realize they don't have a faith at all. And that's what's about to happen to Joash. Second Chronicles 24:15 says this, but Jehoiada, now this is the priest who has been, who helped rescue Joash when he was a baby, who helped hide him away, and who helped instruct him, we're told. He's been instructing him all his life. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. Verse 16, And they buried Jehoiada in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his temple, or his house. This godly man who had helped save Joash from being put to death, who had raised him and instructed him in the ways of the Lord, was now gone. And we would love so much for the next verse to say, and Joash continued to serve the Lord long after the death of Jehoiada. But instead, 2 Chronicles 24, 17 says this, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, that's to Joash, and the king listened to them, oh boy, verse 18, and they abandoned the house of the Lord the God of their fathers. Seriously? They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. I mean, we can hardly believe what we're reading. Jehoiada dies, and Joash and the people immediately abandon the temple and turn back to their other gods, and God's judgment is about to fall. Why? <clears throat> because as I said, God has to be true to his word. He promised long ago in Deuteronomy. We'll pick up a little bit more on that. Uh, I don't know when. When we get to the life of Josiah, 2025 uh, or something. <laughs> God's judgment is about to fall because he told them it would if they abandoned him. But even as that happens, we see the incredible grace of God once again. Verse 19, yet he, that is God, yet God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. Wow. The love of God for his wayward children is staggering. We turn our back on him so often. We, we get so cocky and smart and self-confident. And we think, I can make it this week on my own. I can make it through these plans on my own. And we just make a mess of things. And we end up in sin. And we end up in trouble. And God doesn't walk over and squash us. He reaches out that long arm of grace of his. And he gives us a chance and says, come back. Come back to me. I can tell you, if it were not for God's grace, I would not be here today. My guess is you wouldn't be here either. What a low point these people have sunk to. I mean, it's unbelievable. 
But even that wasn't Joash's lowest point. It got worse from there. Jehoiada's son, the priest's son, was a guy named Zechariah. And God sent Zechariah to them as another opportunity to repent and turn. The Bible says the Holy Ghost came upon Zechariah and he went to them in the power of the Spirit and he chastised them for forsaking the Lord. And how did they respond? Second Chronicles 24, 21. But they conspired against him and at the command of the king, Joash, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Verse 22, thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but he killed his son. Does this remind you of another one who came and his own people didn't recognize him? He came to love them, to save them, but what did they do? They put him to death. That son, too, they put him to death. Can I just throw this in quickly? Zechariah was killed for obeying the Lord. That doesn't preach well. That doesn't bring in the crowds. No, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that thing about getting the best parking space. Where's that church? That's what I want to go to. He was killed for obeying the Lord. Hey, can I just remind you, you and I are not going to get our rewards for serving the Lord while we're here on this earth. We're going to be hated if we're living right. Don't expect to be praised every time you're faithful. Don't expect to be hoisted up on people's shoulders and celebrated as a hero when you stand up against wrongdoing. You might just be persecuted for it. Be faithful anyway. You know why? Our rewards are coming. And they're going to be something else. Amen. So hang on. So Joash has Jehoiada's son killed. And God sends an entire army against him and against the people. Why? Because a good, loving father always disciplines his children when they go astray. You want to know why you see so much mayhem in stores and in restaurants with children tearing the place apart and the parents bargaining with them? Oh, if you're good, I'll buy you an ice cream. It's because the fathers are not disciplining their children. That's why. That's another message for another day. No. Second Chronicles 24, 24, the last part of that verse. Why did God discipline them? He tells us, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. So they executed judgment against Joash. Verse 25, and when they had withdrawn from Joash, they left him severely wounded. And his own servants conspired against him for shedding the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died. And they buried him in the city of David. Watch this. But they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. What a disastrous end to a life with such promise. Not only was he assassinated by his own servants, but he was buried in disgrace. It was a sign of great dishonor for a king not to be buried with the kings. I'll say it again. What a disastrous end to a life with such promise. Just last week, we were talking about this little baby, Joash, who was snatched away from the clutches of Satan, and God gave him a chance and set him on the throne. 
Joash did nothing to deserve that. It was all God's goodness and mercy. He had every potential for doing good. And this is how it ended. How did this happen? How in the world did Joash fall so far from God? And maybe more importantly, how can you and I make sure that those same things will never be written about us when we're gone? Well, let's not miss this vitally important lesson as we wind this down. Don't miss this. Joash was living on a borrowed faith. As long as Jehoiada the priest was there influencing him, Spiritually teaching him, Joash did what was right. But as soon as he got out from under Jehoiada's oversight, it became obviously very quickly that he had no real faith of his own. Now listen, we all need Jehoiadas in our life. We all need to be around godly men and women who, simply because they're in our life, we can, we can draw something of the strength and the warmth of their faith. But it's possible when you have individuals like that in your life to end up with a borrowed faith that isn't yours at all because you've never actually processed what you say you believe. And when those people are gone, that faith dissipates and you become the real you. Let's not forget, Joash's faith looked real. He was saying all kinds of spiritual things. He was doing all kinds of spiritual things. But let's not forget what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, do you understand this is a huge problem? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name do many mighty works? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So let me ask you, is your faith in God your faith, or is it a borrowed faith? Have you just been coasting on the momentum of someone else's faith, like your mom or dad, your grandparents, your spouse? Is yours a borrowed faith, or is it a real living faith given to you through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? This kind of real living faith doesn't come by attending church. It doesn't come by dropping some money in the offering box. It doesn't come by helping the homeless, feeding the hungry. Those are all good things, but they're not the thing. The only way that you and I can have a real, genuine, life-altering faith is through the rebirth, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit when we, our old man, dies and we are born again as a new creation, a child of God. This is why, listen, don't ever scrap the term born again. Churches are not using that anymore. It's, it's too complicated. It's too old-fashioned. 
Listen, it is the crux of what happens to us when we are saved. We are born again new. So I'm going to keep saying born again. Is your faith your faith? Or is it a borrowed faith? Only you can answer that question. And it's a question that you must answer. I would submit to you the clock is ticking for all of us. How long are you going to wait? You rolling the dice? No, I got time. Can I ask you this morning, is the God of the Bible real to you? Is he real to you as the creator of the universe? Your creator to whom you owe everything? Is he real to you as the judge of the universe, your judge, before whom you will one day have to stand and give an account of your life? Is Jesus real to you as the only Savior? Is he your Savior? I'm asking this morning, is this real to you? Not was it real to your parents. Not was it real to your youth pastor when you were growing up. Is this real to you? You cannot live the Christian life, nor can you ever make it into heaven on a borrowed faith. It must be yours. And it could become yours today by repenting of your sin, by calling out to Jesus for salvation, being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Joash's story here is not a pleasant one, but it stands as an important warning for all of us. Many people over the years have gone that way, and they've done so with deep regret. When life is over, here's what I pray. I pray that all of us will be able to honestly say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. May that be true of every one of us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see